I'd like to open with some highlights from a year where we saw significant growth by maintaining our service and providing the support that clients needed during this difficult time, we've been able to deliver a record performance. You've just heard Chris Hill, Chief Executive of investment platform Hargreaves Lansdowne, providing the highlights of his company's financial year to the 30th of June 2020, a year in which the company welcomed £7.7 billion of new business and assets under management rose 5% to £104 billion. Mr Hill might point to Hargreaves award-winning service as a reason for the performance, but the platform can undoubtedly thank coronavirus for the strength of the numbers. Similar strong results are being reported by many of the listed investment platforms, brokers and advisors as coronavirus nerves spark an increase in trading. We'll be talking to Phil Oakley later about how investors, both those who use the platforms and those who buy their shares, can interpret these results. But increased demand is only half of the story, and traditional platforms are having to invest heavily in digital upgrades in order to compete with a host of tech-first apps and platforms, which are capturing the attention of a lot of new investors. It's not actually the case. Um, if you look at behind, under the hood, that they're actually cheaper. They may advertise that they are, but um, a number of them have uh, background costs and custody charges and or limit very heavily what you can do. Whether these platforms can capture meaningful audiences or enough assets to actually make money is another question. One that we put to Adam Dodds, founder of the app-based investment platform Free Trade, and Felicia Hertman, founder of Vinco Invest, which is set to be launched in 2021 and describes itself as the next generation DIY platform. And we've spoken to you, Mary McDougall, who has spent a lot of time comparing the costs of various platforms available to UK-based investors to help those of any experience pick the right product. I'm Megan Boxall. And I'm John Human. Welcome to the Investment Hour. So, picking the right investment platform is not easy, and the rising choice is making that task increasingly difficult. Mary has spent a lot of time delving through the costs of various platforms and assessing how investors can make sure they are maximising their returns. We'll be hearing her thoughts later, but first let's hear her series of interviews with the bosses of various investment platforms. First up is Richard Wilson, Chief Executive of Interactive Investor, the second biggest platform in the UK, which is shaking things up by offering a tiered flat fee subscription model and buying up rival platforms at rapid pace. Hi Richard, thank you very much for joining us. Interactive Investor has been growing very quickly and is now the second largest private investor platform in the UK. You fully integrated Alliance Trust Savings onto your platform last year and have just completed your purchase of the Share Centre. Why have you been so acquisitive and has it all gone smoothly? Hello, Mary. Thank you very much for inviting me to talk with you today. Acquisition integrations, as everyone knows, uh, are not straightforward um, and they have some risk. We're very fortunate to have a, a really capable team who have experience in um, integrating and onboarding business um, and so we've succeeded um, touchwood in completing um, the integrations to date um, on time and by and large without disturbing um, our customers too much inevitably any change that customers didn't don't ask for is an, at best an inconvenience so we do our very best to communicate clearly and offer um, the best choices of support we can. Um, and as far as we can see, that process has, so by and large, been successful. So your tiered flat fee pricing model is what sets you apart from the other big platforms. Um, the plans range from £10 to £20 per month. Why have you adopted this approach and which plan is the most popular amongst your users? That's a great question. Um, 
Well, as we see, there was there were two two or three things going on there. Um, number one, um, we administer um, standard assets, and the the cost to process a thousand BP shares versus a million BP shares is is roughly the same. Um, so the the pricing that is is proposed by other platforms, which is a percentage of assets. Um, doesn't really make a lot of sense, um, and it's sort of been charged because they could rather than because um, they should. Um, a charging a simple fee to provide a service is straightforward and clear. The side effect is, of course, is that they, um, the more that the customer's wealth grows, um, the more they keep because we keep no part of it. Um, our job is to provide that service. And our only interest is supporting those customers to make informed choices that are best for them and not for us. So a flat fee is is therefore, in our view, the, the right um, model um, to support customer choice and simplicity. It happens to be the case at the same time that um, the world appears to be moving more towards subscription-based pricing, We've got obviously the Netflix example, and even um, folks like Tesco's and the Amazon Prime are all um, moving towards um, simple, transparent, consistent charges. And um, our our solution is consistent with what I think now the consumer is increasingly expecting, which is give me transparency and simplicity, offer me value, and I'll respect you for providing a quality of service that I can trust. That's um, a simply and what our goal is. Um, in terms of our most popular um, uh, packages, so as you mentioned, we, we have we have a number, we have three. Um, our standard investor package, which is $9.99 a month, which includes um, access to the vast majority of our services and the free trade um, per month is the most popular. Um, our super investor package, which is the complete investor package, um, suits those that um, are much more active, um, and that's £20 a month that includes a, a lower um, commission per transaction because they do a lot more of it. Um, that has a small number of very active customers. So the most popular is the um, the investor package, which has over 90% of our customers. Thanks. I, I have been interested that platforms are increasingly cutting dealing costs for people who deal more often. Um, do you think this is fair? Could it mean that people who trade less overpay? Well, it's a good question. And it's really a question of um, what people's needs are, which are which are different. I mean, overall, the 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 price, the commissions paid or the price to to um, to buy and sell shares has been coming down progressively over the last few years, and it will continue to do so. I mean, our, our lowest price for UK shares is now £3.99. It wasn't so long ago that that would have been near £100 um, in the in the bad old world, and that will continue to drop. Um, for those investors that don't um, buy and sell very often, obviously, they're more interested in the, um, the, the platform charge than the individual transaction fees. And we do, I mean, as an example ourselves, we offer one free trade per month and a large proportion of customers um, trade less than that. We also um, make it free if you invest on a regular basis. And again, so in terms of 
absolute certainty and clarity and system simplicity if you invest on a regular monthly basis all you pay is the 999 a month and that's it there are those out there who are much more active um and it's uh, something that they 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 they're very involved in and for them they would much rather have a higher platform charge and the and the lower um commission fee so we try and uh, adapt our our pricing to to suit individual um individuals needs the fact that Hogan's Landstein remains by far the biggest platform does perhaps suggest that users are not that price sensitive because it is a bit more expensive than other platforms what do you think matters most to your customers and why do they choose interactive investor um well, first of all on the point of customers being not being price sensitive um i'm not sure i really agree with that part of the the, the problem is lack of transparency and awareness um if we spend we actually we had to employ external consultants ourselves to try and understand what the pricing of um, some of the insurance companies are because it's opaque and obscure and you don't know what's going on so part of the problem with with the customers is they're not told what they're they're charged and some of them if they were told they would be horrified um there are a significant proportion of the retail investors that are very poorly served because the their provider um chooses not to share the the costs because it's it benefits the provider and not not the customer so that's that's a big problem for us we've been an advocate for transparency for simple pounds and pence pricing we've introduced obviously free regular investing and as much transparency as we think is possible um whilst at the same time um banning exit fees to give people again the, the the clear confidence that they have the right to choose. Um that isn't the case in other in other cases who are far more opaque. And of course we've been advocating with the regulators to be far more um assertive about transparency and about um exit fees. Um and some yeah. examples like St. James's Place are pretty aggressive. So in terms of what customers prefer and choose of us, it depends on who they are really. Some um, just like the simplicity and the honesty of our of our fee. So they know that their their wealth belongs to them and as the wealth grows they keep it and there's no ambiguity about what we're there to to do, which is to serve them. That's one population. Some really appreciate the fact that we are um, recognises the best international platform um, in the country where we offer new currency accounts and direct access to all the world's markets, which which um, the other platforms can't do. Some like our original content and some personalization of our services. Um, we have a great team providing insight and opinion on on investments. And others, of course, just looking for a reliable service. I'm so proud of the fact that we um we have a trust pilot score now which is 4.6 which i think is the highest in the in the industry we've got a lot more to do on service um that is never over and we we i think we're not waving any flags but i think we're being recognized increasingly for um being an organization that you can trust to to keep our word behind all that is a continuous investment in technology um we have uh, a new app coming out soon which i think is super cool and that's all about making things easier, uh, faster, and more personalized for, for consumers. So we support um, 
several hundred thousand customers, they're clearly quite different. What they need and want is not the same. Our job is to try and um, provide solutions which um, are, are right for each of them um, in a simple way. So I think that that's really that's really what our ambition. Just back to the price point, you said you disagree that customers aren't price sensitive. Um, there are lots of new platforms that are much cheaper than even what you offer. We're hearing from Free Trade on the podcast later, and Stake and Revolut are also popular for buying US shares. Do you see these as a threat to your business? Yes, yeah, so I think that in terms of being priced, first of all, I mean, our top five um, counterparties, in terms of transfers, you can tell who, who you're competing with um, through the transfers market. And uh, we have about a, a four to one um, inbound transfer um, balance, so four times as many customers transfer into us as transfer out. And the top five of those are the insurance companies and Hargreaves, um, to be clear. Folks like Free Trade and Revolut have got a, a very a much narrower proposition and more about trade in the long term investment than we are, and um, they they do appeal to a perhaps a a, a younger demographic um, who are um, less in need of, of broader long term um, investment services. It's not actually the case um, if you look at behind under the hood that they're actually cheaper. Um, they may advertise that they are, but um, a number of them have uh, a background costs and custody charges and or limit very heavily what you can do. Um, so it's it's certainly something which people advertise. But um, in terms of uh, value, I think under most metrics for the large parts of the, the consumer, we are the, the best value in the in the country and folks like Robinhood have given up and gone away because it's just so hard to make that work if you're um, trying to attract customers um, who have long-term value for them and, and for you. So, I mean, good luck to all the incumbents. It's a very hard market to enter organically. Um, I wish them all well, but um, I think we're, we're quite capable of competing. It's probably fair to say that Interactive Investor is doing more than any other traditional platform in shaking up the market. Its fee structure rewards loyalty and long-term investment. It also has a growing suite of impressive educational content. But not everyone agrees Interactive is going far enough. Felicia Yetman, a former fund manager at Bailey Gifford, thinks that the UK investment market needs a more radical shift. That is why she is in the process of setting up Vinco Invest, which describes itself as a next-generation DIY platform. I've spoken to her about the new platform and why she thinks it will plug an important gap in the market. Thanks very much for joining me. So firstly, what is wrong with the market as it is? Why have you decided that setting up a, a new investment platform is the right thing to do? Um, well, so I think there's there's obviously quite a few incumbents in the space and um, they've been around for a while. Uh, not everything's bad. But I do think from personal experience as well of being on uh, some of these platforms for a while, I think some problems have become really clear to me and to a lot of other people. And they're kind of two parts, really. I think the first one is that there's, there's too much choice, there's too much jargon, and there's too little guidance. And, and I think, therefore, that means that DIY investors like myself and like many others can't make a truly informed decision with ease. And so I think that's the first one, which I personally have always found really frustrating. Um, and then secondly, I think the incumbents perhaps are underappreciating the importance of a truly great digital and particularly mobile experience. And that is in itself understandable because most of their customers are of an, of a, of an age where it doesn't matter as much. 
And whereas actually for investors that we see both from our user research and a lot of other market research, investors under the age of 40 in particular find this a crucial uh, crucial part. And I think, therefore, there's so much more that we can do uh, with that to, to bring really a great experience to people. Yeah, it's an interesting, I mean, two very interesting points you brought up there. Firstly, the age thing. I mean, it is... You can see, you can almost excuse these these platforms for not investing digitally because they haven't had to for, for so long. But as the markets shift, obviously those younger people, those digital savvy people are eventually going to become the majority of the of the private investors. Obviously, they're not at the moment, but they will be. So So satisfying their needs is important. But then also the incumbents, they need to satisfy the needs of, of their current customers as well. How how do you balance that those two those two uh, groups of investors? As in for so for us, we uh, will be launching to the market with a very uh, targeted customer in mind. So that is someone who's between thirty and kind of up to forty five. So we're targeting a younger customer, and therefore, you know, it would be great to have obviously customers of all ages to come onto our platform and find that a great experience. But because we're very focused on what they want and their needs, we don't really have that. Um, struggle where you have to balance the the needs and the demands of different customer groups and also because you're starting with a fresh tech stack we're not bound by a legacy tech stack that's only allowing you to do certain things and so i think for us therefore that's one of the 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 privileges of starting fresh um so we don't have to satisfy many different types of customers we will focus on one first and then we'll go from there and what do you think the needs of that market that 30 to 45 market are so I think there's um, several thoughts. We mentioned the a great mobile experience as, as one thing, and I think that is core as well. And that's why also we're looking at, you know, the people involved in this. There's really deep experience in, um, like, it's a true fintech in the sense of this deep experience on the finance side as well as on the tech side. So really building a fantastic UX, and both in the digital sense but also in the language sense that feels that this speaks to them, that is not alienating for them. And um, and that's one thing, and that's tone of voice, that is how things are shown in terms of how do you display information, what information do they actually care about you know it's, i think it's quite well known for example that responsible investing is more important for a younger investor as one example and just the way that people go about looking for what they want is also driven by different things because our generation of investors have grown up in, in under different circumstances and haven't come necessarily from an advice position into having more knowledge and therefore looking for funds and for exposure in the market in a different way. Um, so we can't go into too much detail around how we're building it, but we're really listening to what our customer needs and wants. And, and it really comes down to building an experience that feels accessible and that feels that it's for them and that people love to use. Because otherwise, if you if you leave the experience with, oh my God, that was dreadful and really took a long time and you know really don't want to do this again, compared to leaving it with, oh, that was actually quite easy. And I actually feel like I understood it and and I'm now really interested in knowing more about this and I want to continue investing. So, you know, that's that's the that's a success if we can get there. Mm, absolutely. And I think that is, however hard other platforms have tried, I, I still struggle to find anything that's got it quite right yet in terms of a, a, a great user experience all round. But then obviously the other side of uh, of it and, and really what investors want is is making money and actually being careful about costs as well. And that's something that a lot of young investors in particular really don't understand. Uh, where where the costs are coming from and how much they're eating into potential returns. How are you helping your core audience avoid extreme charges? 
<laughs> I completely agree with you. And I think, um, first of all, it's, it's a way of, uh, A, it's what the costs are, but then secondly, it's how are those uh, translated or how are those communicated to users? And I think that is also partly of one of the early problems I suggested with too much jargon, that it, and there's also a lack of transparency, I think, and clarity. And what we find is that what people care about most, of course, people want and need great value. Like that is a core cool thing of when we're setting the parameters for our fund offering, uh, great value for, for your money is, is a crucial part of that, of course. But then in terms of our platform fees and fees in general, people want clarity. People are happy to pay for a great service and for a good fund. And there's no, you know, I think the fact that the the leading platform by a mile is the most expensive one speaks to that, that what people want is clarity and a great service. So that is key for us in building as, as clear as possible to our users, what fees are they paying and what does it go towards? And whether that is for our platform fee, the, the charges on the fund and what are additional charges, we're looking at what we can do to kind of try and make that as clear to them as possible. Um, but then also, you know, back onto, you know, getting good value for money. We are looking at setting certain caps on, on active funds as well as passive funds. There's a lot of passive funds that are charging way more than they should do. Um, so, so, you know, we will have a mix of both active and passive and we want all of them to be good value for money. Yeah, absolutely. And navigating, helping people navigate those costs is extremely important. Have you got any idea of what a sort of basic model would look like yet in terms of what where the costs will actually be coming from for, for, for your customers? In terms of what we will be charging them? Yeah. Or, yeah so um, we're looking at a very um, fair and transparent one-off kind of a fee, a, a fraction of a percentage of the assets that you have uh, put through on the platform. And um, we also are looking at different structures of funds that we may be able to offer. But ideally, we want there to be just one fee. And instead of there being also then transaction fees for this and for that, and it becomes really muddled of understanding how much have I actually paid in aggregate. So that's why we're trying to find what we think is a fair fee for the value that we bring to people. And we're being very upfront with what that is. And then how that evolves um, will also be, you know, slightly different to what what those what that's, what fees are based on at the moment in the market, which we're really excited about. Um, but we can't really go into too much detail about that now. But we try to rethink fees as well so that they are fair and that there's a win-win situation and that they're aligned with, you know, the best interest of our of our customers as well as us in that sense. Mm-hmm. The other thing you mentioned right at the beginning was the choice. And actually, that's something, it's almost becoming harder. There's more funds being launched. There's more countries that British people can, can invest in and there are more platforms for them which people can do that. It's becoming extremely difficult to navigate the, the market. How are you going to narrow down the choice for, for, for your customers? Mm. I mean, there's over, I think, over 3,000 funds in the, in the market at the moment available to retail investors. I don't think it's uncontroversial to say that nobody needs 3,000 funds. Um, and, um, and so... And we've also seen like these various different, whether you want to call them best buy lists or short lists or whatever that you've seen on these platforms, they have been immensely helpful for retail investors. That's come out of both general market research, the SEA's own research. It really does help people. And that's because you know, fundamentally people want choice and they want breadth. But when you have too much, it paralyzes you. And you just feel like I, I don't, it's too daunting and it's just too confusing. And so 
I think therefore what we're doing is we're offering a more kind of um, a more manageable universe of funds. So we're looking at launching you know, between 50 and 100 funds that may go up over time, but it's not going to go anywhere near the 3000 because we don't think that frankly, anyone needs that many. And so what we're looking at is, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, when we're def- still defining the parameters of what that universe looks like, is we have certain um, kind of caps on whether it's fees or looking at certain other factors of how we decide what that list looks like to make sure that it's a great selection that gives people that breadth so that you should come onto the platform and feel you can always find what you want in terms of exposure, even without there being every single fund on there. And then we've done a good job. And we will also want to speak to our users and find out, well, you know, trying to fill, figure out a good mechanism for making sure that if there is something that is particularly wanted that we don't have, can we review that somehow? Can we bring that to people? Um, but I don't know, it always makes me think a little bit of, um, I've, I've done this kind of comparison before and, and sometimes I think people sometimes do get it in the sense of electric vehicles and how people think I need X number of miles. And actually what you really need is actually only a fraction of those miles is because you, you want to make sure that you can do what you need to do, what you want to do. And, and therefore we think, you know, around 100, around that number is still plenty of offer uh, and, and choice for people. Yeah, I mean, I, to be honest, I, I actually still think that sounds like a pretty solid amount. Uh, and, and filtering through them, uh, obviously, people are going to... Uh, I mean, if I was a new investor, 100 funds is still relatively overwhelming. How are you going to make sure that people can filter through them to find what they actually want and actually what they need as well? I mean, I know you've got a narrow bracket, but the, a 30-year-old will want a different sort of looking portfolio to a 45-year-old and, and also depending on their portfolio size and things like that. How are you going to manage that? Yeah, so we um, will be a guidance only, so non-advice platform. We don't, uh, we're not regulated for advice, so we can't, we can't go as far as giving personal advice. However, we think there's a lot still that can be done in guidance and so on. But what we're also looking at is um, building out the filters in a way that makes sense and is based on instead of those typical standard industry jargon terms, that is how the information is given to the platforms through the data APIs, we're trying to think more, um, what we think more holistically and more from a sense of, well, what do people really want to search by? And what is it that they're really looking for? And then trying to make that a much more intuitive process. Um, so that is kind of building out perhaps some filters that don't currently exist, but also thinking around the search functionality in perhaps a slightly different way, but you can come at it from different angles um, so that you can find what you want fairly quickly. Because I guess that's, you know, like you said, that's exactly what you want. And and I always think I, I would like to compare it to when you go online and if you look for, you know, a black dress in your size and budget on a platform, on whether that's on ASOS, H&M, whatever, you can filter that down pretty quickly from the many, many options to what you want. And I think if we can do something similar and that comes down to figure out exactly the filters that people are looking for, um, so, so we're quite excited about that and then how we can build on those filters and make it feel even more of a perhaps bespoke experience in how you at least filter for things. We might be able to do more about that later on as well. Um, so, so we're really excited about what we, you know, there's, there's a huge opportunity to do more here for sure. Mm, no, absolutely. Have, have you got a date yet at all into when Brits might see this? platform <laughs> yes yeah, so we're, we're looking at a launch of early 2021 uh we're working really hard there's a lot of things that are there's technical build there's regulation there's all kinds of things that need to come into play uh at the same time and so on so but i know we, we're working really hard to bring it uh bring it out as soon as possible um, yeah yeah i mean a f- funny old time to be doing this <laughs> it is it is 
just uh, just finally, uh, we've seen a lot of platforms, digital first platforms come to the market in the last few years. It is a popular space. And so far, not many of them are making money. Have you got that in the back of your mind all the time? Or at the moment, is it all about just getting that platform launched and, and welcoming as many people to, as possible to the platform? You know, of course, I mean, that is definitely in our minds. Uh, it's, as you said, there's been a lot of players come in and, and it is important that for it to be a viable business, it needs to make money at some point at the very least. Um, and, and that is very much, you know, my background is as a fund manager looking at, great quality businesses profitable businesses you know we're building as we want to build a sustainable business here so that is crucially important to be able to do that um i think the slight perhaps difference is that the platforms we've seen come to the market or the digital uh, really robo advisors that have come to the market that's been innovation in that advice space which i think is great it's trying to make advice easier more accessible and and to some extent cheaper um but i think we haven't seen that happen in the DIY space, which is what we're doing. And there is a slightly different customer profile. Someone who comes to a robo-advisor tends to be younger, tends to be completely new to investing. And and what we're targeting are people who already do invest and who want more control, who want to pick their own things, who want that transparency. And a lot of the times they might be, you know, almost graduating from, from the robo-advisors onto a DIY platform and then they're left with the incumbent offering and and we kind of want to be that that option for them at that point as well as people who might want a better experience than what they get on on current platforms so therefore the economics of our customer the sophistication of our customer the knowledge of them um is is slightly different and therefore the amount of um you know we're looking at how do we get the message out and how do we you know brand this and communicate to our users but we don't have that hurdle of trying to convince people why investing is a good thing in the first place. That kind of, that battle is already fought. And to some extent by the robo-advisors. So it is a slightly different angle and a different position in the market, um, which we think means that we have a better chance at at getting to profitability quicker. Okay. What sort of portfolio size are you expecting? So, I mean, in in the early days, you know, people want to try it out and like build that up and so on. Um, We're looking at, you know, the average in the market is around across all of these platforms is around 40K Um, for a robo advisor is considerably less than that. And whereas if you look at the the pure DIY platforms, like our most direct competitors is kind of up in the 80 grand kind of category. So it's quite actually wide dispersion and therefore, we have certain targets that we'd like to hit, but um, we, we certainly want to be you know, closer to, and we think we will be closer to that average um, earlier on. Uh, and then, you know, moving moving higher as people build confidence in us, build confidence and, and like the platform and feel that they're getting good value for money and have a great experience, really. Well, very best of luck. And I look forward to uh, seeing the platform when it launches. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Mary's next guest is already attempting to solve the problems in the way the investment industry is structured. Adam Dodds founded Free Trade in 2018 and has seen its user numbers spike this year from 90,000 to 225,000. Customers can pick from around 1,600 stocks, ETFs, investment trusts listed both in the UK and in the US, with more products being added every week. The platform raised £7 million from crowdfunding in May, bringing the total they've raised to about £24 million. Hi, Adam. Thank you very much for joining us today. You must have had a busy year doubling Free Trade's customer base, seeding investment, and adding products and features to the app almost on a weekly basis and um, presumably doing most of this from home how's it all going amazingly well um it's it's great to see so many impactful things being shipped now that uh, 
you know, it looks like we're rolling these things out so fast right now, but really they're the fruits of years of, of effort and, uh, and toil. And uh, we're looking forward to, to shipping more stuff uh, in, in, the, in the coming months. Some really exciting stuff coming up. Um, our premium account is in rollout right now. Um, that's going to be rolled out to our, our wider customer base of over 200,000 in the coming months. Uh, we've got more wrappers, tax wrappers coming up, like uh, self-invested pension plans. Uh, we've been working on an edu- educational kind of hub uh, to help people get into investing and uh, level up their understanding. And then uh, the really big one is we're going to be launching to Europe, uh, the rest of Europe, in the coming months as well. So a lot of exciting stuff. And yeah, we're like you said, we're doing it all in lockdown or semi-lockdown now, I guess. <laughs> Have you managed to do it all without having any major IT issues on the app? Yeah, that's that's the amazing thing, I think, um, is that we moved over to our own proprietary brokerage platform uh, at the beginning of 2020. And that has scaled perfectly smoothly throughout uh, some pretty massive volatility and huge spikes in user behavior and numbers that we've seen. And uh, had, we've had no uh, no outages due to our own tax, at least. And can you tell me what your vision is for the app? Because you've just mentioned lots of new products that you're launching and, and the app's developed very fast. Do you see yourself as a direct competitor to main players such as Hargreaves Landstein, Interactive Investor and AJ Bell? Well, what what are we trying to do? We're trying to get everyone investing. That's our mission of free trade. Um, I think we are designing our product with the broadest appeal possible. Um, it's definitely aimed at newer investors, perhaps um, investors that haven't had a lot of time in the market to build up a, a large portfolio, and also investors that prefer to have a, a more modern product, uh, mobile-based product. Uh, but but yeah, we're we're absolutely out there to to get everyone investing um, and uh, make the product accessible to everyone. And you mentioned that you're launching your premium account soon. Um, a noticeable thing about free trade is that it really is a lot cheaper than incumbent platforms. Um, basic account holders face no charges and ISA account holders just pay £3 per month and there are no dealing fees. I think the question for our listeners will be, how can they know that their money is safe with you? So can you explain how you make money and reassure people of your longevity? Well, I think first off, the thing to understand, regardless of what you think of our business model, we are a financial institution regulated by the FCA. We comply with the same regulations, world-class regulations around client money, client assets. Um, and we're you know, members of the same organizations as incumbents, such as the London Stock Exchange, or the Central Securities Depository here in the UK. So it's it's not um, vastly different in how we safeguard the cash and securities of our customers. Um, and we also are a member of the financial services compensation scheme because of that. Uh, so, you know, your first, I forget, I think it's 75K uh, of your investments is covered by that insurance scheme as well. So it's a like-for-like comparison in terms of safety, um, regardless of what happens with free trade. That said, of course, uh, we we do have a sustainable business model 
that is, as you said, a lot cheaper than the incumbents, but that doesn't mean that it's not sustainable. Uh, the biggest difference is that we've built our technology in the last couple of years. So we're, I guess, uh, benefiting from some some efficiencies there. But, uh, you know, we also just have a, a different different cost base than the incumbents, I would say. And we also have a, a different way of delivering our product. Um, so it's it's all it's all digital. We don't have you know call centers or um, you know branches or places that you can come in and visit humans. Um, it's all right on your phone in an app. Uh, and going back to the the business model, uh, you did mention the premium account. So that's fundamentally our, our model is a freemium business model. Something that I think pretty much everybody's pretty familiar with these days uh, with software, whether that's uh, you know, paying for a Spotify subscription um, to not pay, not to have ads when you're listening to music, or upgrading to iCloud storage on your iPhone, where you pay a little bit more for more storage. That's that's not any different than the free trade model, where you do pay for extras, but the base service is free. And one thing that you do offer that tr- many traditional platforms don't offer is fractional share trading. Uh, which is particularly appealing for U.S. stocks. But presumably investors can't actually own the, the sh- part of the share. Can you explain how this works? Yeah, so you do own the share. Um, the The way to really think about uh, ownership of stocks, I think, is more about a proportional ownership of the equity in that company. How you slice and dice it is rather arbitrary. Um, Apple in the news right now, you know, they're just going through a stock split. Uh, whether you know whether you have one share worth a thousand or two shares worth five hundred or four worth two hundred and fifty doesn't make any difference. It's the same claim to equity ownership of the company. Um, we're just slicing it a little bit finer, um, and and it's still physical ownership, uh, so-called physical ownership of of shares in the company. Um, I just, uh, I think that the full share ownership, um, it's something that's just been around for so long that people are, are used to it and, and think that that's the only way. But, um, you know, one, one pound can be subdivided into 50p and 50p. Uh, it's no different than, um, than share ownership. Okay, so do you get the price that's shown at the time at which you transact. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, you still we still use share price as the indicative. You know, that's the price that the that's the market price. That's the standard measure. Um, but yeah, if you buy half a share, it's still at that value. It's, it's no different than going into the supermarket and buying whatever it is one pound worth of. Um, physical pound uh, weight worth of bananas or half a pound of bananas. You know, you're still talking about bananas. There's a price per pound, right? Okay, I guess it's quite attractive to younger investors who maybe don't have as much to invest. You said before that your average portfolio size is £2,000 or about £2,000. Can you tell me what trends you've seen in investor behaviour and what people are buying and how frequently they're trading? Sure. So, yeah, I think our, our average portfolio size when we first started out was far south of a thousand pounds. 
and we've seen that grow grow over time. So the average, you know, free trade user starts out with a relatively modest uh, amount and then builds that portfolio over time. So as I said, a lot of our users are, are either new to investing or they're just kind of getting started. So they don't have a, a large portfolio size yet, but they're building it over time with what they make from their paycheck. Um, in more jargony terms, that's you know dollar cost averaging, pound cost averaging, uh, and just uh, investing in the market Every month, contributing more and more. That's what that's what we're seeing as a as a typical investor. Um, in terms of what they're holding, uh, you know, a typical free trade customer would be holding a large portion of their portfolio in passive, passively tracking ETFs. So that's like an index fund. Um, so kind of just enjoying the market returns of the broader market without paying um, very much in fees. And then um, investing in some select companies that they uh, they believe in will provide an investment return for whatever reason they, they think. You know, some popular ones right now, really popular ones are the tech stocks, uh, probably the number one holding of our um, of free trade customers has been Tesla, uh, which they've done quite well on over the over the last say six months. And it's it's really about you know believing in the investment story, believing in uh, you know a carbon a zero carbon future and profiting off of you know investing in a company that you believe in and, and in uh, kind of a cause that you believe in. Uh, so it's um, kind of win win that way. Yeah, what's the split between shares in ETFs roughly, and what people are buying? I think we're just under. I think forty percent ETFs, sixty uh, percent stocks. Quite a lot of new breed platforms offer derivative trading, like Robinhood. Is this something that you think you'll get into? No, um, we we from the beginning we've always thought that we should design our business model and our product to be aligned with our customers. And the North Star for us as a company is the investment returns, investment outcomes of our of our customers. And it's very well known that these leveraged derivative products are toxic to investor returns. The vast majority of anyone that uses these products loses money on them. Uh, so we're we're steering well clear of them. Yeah, that's a very good point. They will say on their website that roughly three quarters of people lose money on them. Yeah, that's in a bull market too, right? Yeah, yeah. No, it's, yeah. it's, not, it's not, a good, not a good story. Um, but thank you very much for joining us. That was really interesting. Cool. Thanks, Mary. Hi, Mary. Thanks firstly for putting together all those interviews. Really interesting selection of people. Obviously as well, what you've done is spent quite a lot of time looking at the costs of all these various platforms and, and that's information that we've got up on our website now so if uh, people want to delve into the cost more Mary's done all that digging what do you think you've learned what are the biggest takeaways from your digging into the cost situation hi Megan yeah I think my first takeaway is that platform charges are a minefield and it's really difficult to compare them um, the table we made together is pretty comprehensive but it still doesn't quite include everything there's lots of things you've got to think about. Annual fees, dealing fees, dividend reinvestment fees, transfer fees, foreign exchange charges, whether you want to hold funds or shares. Um, so when picking a platform, you have to think how you're going to use it. Just to run you through some of the main players, 
Hargreaves Lansdowne charges sell at 0.45% for funds and for ISAs, and this is really quite expensive. But if you just want to hold shares in a general account, then the, then the costs are quite competitive. Um, AJ Bell charges start at 0.25%, which is very low, but they do have other fees that other platforms don't charge, like exit fees and dealing fees. Um, but these are still quite low. And Interactive Investor has the flat fee model, as we've already heard, and the cheapest subscription has an annual charge of £120 per year. Uh, this makes roughly 50000 as the tipping point for Interactive Investor to be cheaper than AJ Bell. It's interesting that point, that, that flat fee thing, and it was Richard Wilson sort of talked it through really, really well. And one of the things I think the, the thing that I found the most interesting that he said was it, t- it costs the same amount to process a million BP shares as it costs to process a thousand BP shares, which is why the, the flat fee model works for a higher, a larger portfolio. And he thinks it's fairer for people with a larger portfolio. Um, do you think that argument, his argument about simple, transparent, consistent charges is the right one? And do you think we'll see more companies offering flat fees? Um yeah, I do. I'm quite, I'm quite bought into that. It, it depends how you use the platform again. So if you don't deal very often, that's going to play into their favour. They offer some free dealing. Um, but it, it, it does seem to make sense in how costs are being driven down. You asked him a really good question about whether or not the fact that they that it kind of rewards people who trade more the the flat fee model which actually isn't necessarily the right way of investing especially if you've got a smaller portfolio of course and yet vanguard is if you're going to just be buying a one-off buying a few funds it's it's hard to suggest anything anything else especially on a cost basis you can only buy vanguard funds though yeah Um, most platforms don't actually charge you to buy funds they just you pay dealing fees for shares investment trusts and etfs but vanguard's own funds are so cheap on its own platform yeah yeah no it's definitely uh, apart from these new breed platforms which i'm sure we'll talk about later it's it's the cheapest platform for investing in in funds Mm, yeah it's a and it's a simple platform as well it's a nice they are only vanguard products that you can buy on there but it's a it's a nice platform it's it's pretty easy to use And, and that goes on to the next point really service and user experience and they are they are important. I know Richard Wilson disagreed with you about the uh, the fact that cost doesn't ma- seem to matter so much to people. But in my talk with um, Felicia, she she was saying how actually user experience almost seems more important to most people than price. And yeah, if that user experience is so important, is that why Hargreaves is the most popular? Is it that much better than all the rest? I think as much user experience, I think it's brand and trust. If people are handing over their money, they need to know that their money is safe with so i think hargreaves is is the the most prominent name and and gets the most trust in that respect in terms of user experience uh, yes it it is the best platform it's um it's got loads of research it's got lots of good tools but the others are really catching up fast and they're really investing in it as richard said and i'm not this is a personal opinion but i'm not sure that the, the, the Hargreaves service level necessarily warrants how much more expensive it is. Especially if you're only buying funds and it, 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 it's so, when it's so easy and it's so cheap to buy things on just, say, a Vanguard, then, yeah, the, the fees do seem a little bit crazy. Yeah, there's one thing that I noticed. I think Fidelity, this is quite an interesting feature, Fidelity, I think, is the only platform that enables you to see performance over time. Mm. On the platform, which is quite a handy feature. So it's not, you know, Hargreaves doesn't have everything. 
and I suppose that comes back as well to ultimately what people want from their investments, which is they're going to make them money. And I know that past performance isn't the only indicator of future success, but people do like that reassurance, I suppose, if they can see the past performance over time. Yeah, I, I guess it's, it's a sort of fun feature to have as well. Mm, yeah. So when you're considering which platform to choose, and obviously we've, we've spoken to three quite different platforms that are available and they're just a handful of what's out there. What do you think is the most important thing to be considering? Again, it's horses for courses. Um, but I think you need to make sure it's got the products that you're looking for. Make sure it's easy enough to use and we'll have the service levels you want. And, and try and pick the cheapest one out there because um, it makes so much difference over time and investing is a long-term gain. And with the compounding effects of fees, you can end up paying so much more mm. the platform consultancy the Landcat, did some analysis on how much you might pay if you invested a hundred thousand pounds into a sip over 25 years and assuming an annual growth rate of five percent at the end of 25 years assuming you don't put any more money in um, at the end of 25 years on hargreaves lansdowne you would have paid 20, over twenty thousand pounds AJ Bell, you would have paid about 12000 An interactive investor on their most expensive plan, you would have spent 8000 in fees. I mean, so it's quite a big difference. It's a crazy difference. It's a, those numbers are just extraordinary. And, yeah, I suppose when you're in the here and now and you're choosing what, what platform, those, those numbers adding up seem like a long way away. But, yeah, they absolutely should be considered. How about the, the new breed of, uh, of platforms, the free trade, as you spoke to Adam Dodds and, and the others, and we've got Ticker, Finimize is attempting to get into the market as well, some of the robo-advisors as well, which claim very low costs. Would you be comfortable investing in, in one of these new platforms? Personally, I think, I think I probably would. They're a really interesting development. They've really captured the imagination of younger investors, which is great. When I asked Richard if he saw them as a threat, he said, no, they're after a younger demographic, which I thought was quite interesting because investing is a long-term game and the younger will become older. The problem, it seems to me, is that they're offering something for free that isn't free. And it's difficult to see how they can turn them into profitable businesses. Like some of them, like Trading212 and eToro, offer derivatives trading, um, which they can make more of a margin on. But free trade and Revolut are, are miles off profitability. Um, and they've raised a lot of money very quickly off crowdfunding um, which could look a little bit like money chasing a dream possibly but that doesn't mean that it's going to be a disaster your money should be ring fenced by the broker and what they're offering is compelling um you know we might see them getting bought out like aviva buying wealthify just just an interesting point like amazon um they lost money for what, 15 years before they started. Yeah, it's a good point, but Amazon was slightly more of a unique business model than, than these are. The other thing that you did actually yeah, ask Richard Wilson about, which um, we did end up taking out of the interview, but it was an interesting question, was about whether or not Interactive are thinking of, of listing, like AJ Bell has done, like IG, Hargreaves is obviously listed as well, and St James Place, the biggest advisor in the UK um, and he, he said yes they, it's a potential consideration do you think we might see some of the smaller newer platforms thinking about going down the IPO route as well I think they're quite a long way off that <laughs> I think <laughs> I think it's possible but I think I'm not sure if um, their balance sheets look like they're in a position to float anytime soon but I, I would yeah I might be proven wrong 
And how about the interactive investor IPO potential? Do you think that's something that private investors and actually interactive own customers should be interested in? Yeah, I think so. Well, JC Flowers are going to want their money back at some point. <laughs> um, but if you just look at AJ Bell's float, which happened at the end of 2018, their share price has done really mm. well. Um, and there's a lot of reputation, I think, or they would argue the sort of reputational benefits that come with it. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think that is a, looks like a, a promising story. Awesome. Thanks very much, Mary. And thanks for putting this podcast together. It's really helped lay out all the different options for investors pondering which investment platform to use. Not at all. Thank you. Another useful trick for assessing the platforms is taking a look at their financial results of the listed providers. Now that most of the big ones have reported, John has spoken to Phil about what we can learn from them. How are you doing, Phil? Yeah, well, thanks, John. What did you think of these results? They were uh, they were pretty good. They were. They were. I mean, there are there are you know lots of reasons for this, and um, these reasons have been in you know been in place for for a long time, and um, you know due to just the way that the you know the business model of uh, Hargreaves lands down, um, how big it is, how many customers it's got. When when stock markets are are buoyant or are high, I know they've been volatile. Um, these companies make a lot of money. How do they make their money? So, so obviously, you know, increased activity. But one of the things I noticed um, in the statement that I thought was really fascinating was how much they actually make from cash that's sitting on the platform. So uninvested cash that belongs to their customers. Yeah, um, they, they make too much money, in my opinion. Yeah, it's it's you know Hargreaves give um, you know they give a lot of breakdown into um, what drives their profit margin, and you can see, you know, I mean the biggest driver remains you know the money they make from platform charges on funds, but uh, the that uh, they're making they're making some quite healthy profits from. Uh, from from the huge amounts of cash their customers have got swelling about in their accounts in their accounts, ninety one million of revenue from from uh, from cash um, that was up quite significantly year on year. What's, sorry, sorry. What's really interesting, um, and you know, is and this is if you actually look at the, the the revenue margin. So that is the the revenue that they're getting as a percentage of the of the money that they're managing then cash is now their most profitable revenue stream. They are making 74 basis points of margin on cash. So they're actually making more money on cash than they are on funds. How are they doing that? I mean, clearly, what, what seems to be clear here is that they have, must, they, they've got you know, a relationship with either a bank and I've not looked. I've not looked in detail. I mean, this may be may be disclosed elsewhere. They've got a relationship clearly with um, a bank or a, or a financial partner, which is paying them quite a good rate of interest. Um, you know, there's twelve billion average 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 of just over twelve billion pounds of cash um, that's been used over the last year. Um, and you know we know that interest rates are next to nothing, um, but you know clearly 
there are banks or financial institutions out there that will pay a reasonable amount and allow allow Hargreaves to, to take a cut. And um, yeah, it's to me to me this doesn't doesn't read well. Um, I, I I think that you know for me I've held the view for quite a while now that I think Hargreaves is over earning. Its its profits are too high, and I think the reason that its profits are too high is because it's overcharging its customers. But you know that story's been true for a long time now, and a lot of its customers don't seem to care because they're not losing customers. Yeah, I mean they're, they're gaining customers. I think they're up to something like one point four million now. I think they added. 188,000 customers uh, over the year, which is an extraordinary amount of uh, new new customers. Uh, net new business of 7.7 billion. So you know this this uh, you're right. The, you know n- the high charges don't seem to be putting anyone off. What, why do you think that is? What, why do people plump for Hargreaves? Why is it the most popular platform when it's really not the most price competitive? Because they are very very good at what they do. Um, you know I can. You know, I can criticise them about their charges, but I will also praise them um, for 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 um, what they, you know, what they do for their customers. They are, you know, they are very very good at looking after their customers, um, marketing to them, holding their hands. I think their website's pretty good, um, and they. They're just very, very good. I mean, you know, they spend, you know, they spend, you know, their, their staff costs alone are over a hundred million. You know, for a business that's based down in Bristol, you know, they're spending a lot of money on staff. Um, you know, the marketing spend last year, and I think this is what, which is what they do probably better than anybody else, is it is a fantastic triumph of marketing and branding. And this is this is what has, has allowed them, or one of the many things that has allowed them to become so successful. And you know, their marketing, their marketing and distribution costs last year almost doubled. And they're in such a strong position. They're so profitable. They're so much bigger and so much more profitable than their than their nearest competitor that they they can throw money at advertising, winning customers, and it's very difficult. Very, very difficult to compete against that. And one of the things that, you know, any business that can do to, to retain and win customers is sell peace of mind. And I think Hargreaves have been absolutely brilliant at selling peace of mind to, to customers. That, that said, Phil, that said, I mean, the um, Neil Woodford saga last year did cast a bit of a shadow over Hargreaves. You know, they, they were a bit too close to that problem. Yeah, I was going to come. I was going to come to that, <laughs> with, the, with the exception, um, because I, 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 you know, this this comes back to why Hargreaves is so profitable. There, are, there, are, there are two reasons why Hargreaves is really profitable. One, one is sheer scale, and you know what you're looking at here is a, a large amount of the cost base of actually providing this platform is fixed. And therefore, an increase in, in revenue, a lot of that flows through to an increase in profits. 
So once you've covered all that, all those fixed costs, each additional pound of revenue drops through to profit. And when you've got the the size and scale of of Hargreaves Lansdowne, this is why you have a business that is, you know, almost and probably close to being obscenely profitable as it is. I mean, it's like you know, it's like right move. You know, it's you know, you're dealing with a business that is. You know, there's a lot of IT, a lot of fixed infrastructure. And once you get, get the scale, the leverage effect on profits is massive. And that's what's, that's what's going on here. The other thing is that this is a business that built itself up by selling managed funds to its customers right from the get-go. And... Um, it pocketed a lot of commission from fund managers, like all like all platforms did. And what it's been able to do is hold on to um, a lot of that commission through platform charges. And a few years ago, the um, FCA outlawed commissions to uh, from fund managers to to um, to advisors and platforms. Um, just just as a, a rough rule of thumb, probably sort of six, seven years ago, the standard charge on a managed fund um, or a unit trust, as some people would have known them, was about 1.5% a year on the value of your investment. The fund manager kept half of that, uh, uh, so 0.75. Um, 0.25 roughly used to go to the platform, and 0.5 used to go to the financial advisor. As, as commission and um, what essentially happened is that platforms like Hargreaves Lansdowne were pocketing this 0.5% commission for advice that they never gave it was never gave and it was like a huge windfall and some of that windfall was used to cut the fees that, that clients paid on the funds so instead, what they would have said is so, okay we'll we'll take 0.25 we'll take half of our advice commission and we'll slash the cost of owning a fund from 1.5 to 1.25 um and still make a lot of money and since then since those those um, that that fee structure that commission structure has been banned Hargreaves have replaced that with a very high platform fee um, on managed funds. So they pay the clients holding funds up until up to about a quarter of a million pounds or to a quarter of a million are paying 0.45% to Hargreaves for the privilege of doing so. And this is very profitable business and it explains why Hargreaves, if you look at the vast majority of their market, literature is all about managed funds and getting people to own managed funds they don't talk a lot about investment trusts or etfs or individual stocks and shares they you know they have you know they had something called the wealth 150 and now it become the, the wealth 50 i think it is now and and it's no no surprise that this is what they push to their customers because this is where they make their huge profits from and I, you know, I've I've had chats behind the scenes with people at Hargreaves Lansdowne in the past about this, and and basically just said, look, this is this is ridiculous. You know, why are you charging people 0.45 
to hold a fund on your platform, um, what is the difference between holding funds and holding shares and investment trusts and ETFs where you charge them a fixed fee which can't go more than £200 a year? And I've, and I've cited the example, you know, how somebody with a million-pound pot could be paying sort of £3,000 to Hargreaves Lansdowne every year in 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 platform fees if they hold all their money in funds. Somebody holding all their money in shares and ETFs and investment trusts only pay £200. Now, that's a massive difference. It's a big issue. I, I think that the, the regulators, quite frankly, have allowed the platform firms to get away with this. And um, for me... It's it's a form of price discrimination that that customers are paying vastly different fees for really something that is essentially the same as far as they are concerned and Hargreaves Lansdowne are concerned. And I'm talking here about the actual costs of holding these assets, administering these assets. There is no, from what I can see, there is no difference or no significant difference um, to holding a holding a fund or holding an ETF or a share on a platform, and yet the costs that the customer pays to do so are massively different. Surely, you know, if someone's making too much money, there's room for competitors to come into this market. There is, and you know, the other the other right, you know, AJ Bell will charge 0.25. On the, on the same basis. And Interactive Investor have a slightly different charging structure as, as well. Um, so there is, there is competition. And I think, and I think what, what seems clear to me about Hargreaves Lansdowne is, is there's a lot of inertia amongst its customer base. Um, because the, the, as, as we can see, you know, numbers, the numbers are telling you this, that this, is, this doesn't seem to worry. This doesn't seem to worry a large number of uh, Fargreaves Lansdowne customers. But it's quite extraordinary. I mean, you know, the compounding effect of those fees over time, you know, is going to make a huge dent in anyone's pot. Why aren't people waking up to this? It's- I don't know, John. I don't know why, why it is. But I think, I, I just think that Hargreaves Lansdowne has become deeply entrenched with, with its customers. I think there are a lot of people who are just, you know, Happy, they've got their savings pot parked with them. They get their statements. I think there's a lot of passive, not passive investments in terms of investing in passive funds, but I think there's a lot of people who just just let it let let their investments get on with it. You you would have thought though, you know, the the, the Woodford fiasco would have woken some of them up to this this a bit because Hargreaves was pushing that very very hard. Why was it pushing it so hard? Was it a better financial arrangement for Hargreaves? Oh yes, absolutely. I mean, it, it it suited it suited both parties very well. You know what what Hargreaves offers fund managers is massive distribution of their funds. You know they are the biggest platform by a long way. You know, being friends with Hargreaves Lansdowne can be very helpful. But what Hargreaves Lansdowne will want in return is that they'll want the fund manager to give up a chunk of their margin to go onto their platform. Um, but what seems to be the case is that Hargreaves Lansdowne doesn't want to give up any of its margin, uh, which is one of the reasons why, I mean, obviously Neil Woodford 
Um, Hargreaves Lansdowne were massive fans of Neil Woodford for a long time. And, you know, he was a name up until things went wrong that was easy to sell. Um, but it's very telling that, you know, Terry Smith, for example, um, is not on is not on not on the wealth the wealth fifty or whatever it's called now, because he won't give he won't give Hargreaves Lansdowne a discount, and I I totally understand where he's coming from, and it hasn't done any any harm whatsoever. Absolutely, I mean, you know, there are other you know, notable absences from uh, from from Hargreaves um, shortlist. Um, they've got no Vanguard trackers, for example, in their trackers uh, shortlist. Um, there's one from Fidelity. You know, the, you know, Vanguard must be a serious competitor, a serious threat to uh, to, to Hargreaves. I mean, you, you know, they have they are cheap, and there will be a sec- section of the market that, that wants the best price. There has to be. They must see them as a, a very serious competitor, serious threat. Yes, but I think I. Personally, I'm not that impressed with Vanguard's. Vanguard has just launched a SIP product, and I'm not that impressed with it. I think it's too expensive. Um, you know, it's actually if you if you um, I think the fees are capped at three hundred and seventy-five pounds a year on Vanguard. Um, you can own Vanguard if you own a load of Vanguard funds in your SIP. It's actually cheaper to own them through Hargreaves Lansdowne, probably than than through um, than through Vanguard. And I, I think that Vanguard are late to the game here. I also think Vanguard, whilst theoretically you think they are they are a strong competitor and potentially a very strong competitor, I'm not so sure at the moment that they are because. I think you've got to look at what they're actually selling to people. Where we are today is that buying, buying, if you're a UK investor, buying a UK stock market tracking fund hasn't done you much good. And um, therefore, stacking up against UK investment trusts, UK, I mean, UK shares haven't done you much good. Let's be, let's be blunt about this. But buying, buying a tracker of the UK stock market has not been a great investment for quite some time. And that's essentially a large part of Vanguard's offer. Um, yes, they offer bonds and they offer exposure to, to overseas markets. But I, and I'm not convinced that Vanguard's ETF and tracker fund offer is as compelling, say, as some, someone like BlackRock. And whilst it's being put into a wrapper, I think the wrapper that uh, Vanguard is offering is not priced particularly well. I mean, if I'm, if I'm with another provider and I've got a load of Vanguard ETFs, um, you know, I'm paying 200 quid tops. I think where it, where it will become cheaper for, through Vanguard, if you own the Vanguard tracker funds, which will attract higher platform charges elsewhere, then the Vanguard wrapper makes a lot of sense. But for exchange-traded funds, it doesn't. And I, I think Vanguard, Vanguard's got its pricing wrong for me. Okay. I mean, it all sounds like, you know, Hargreaves' position is, is sort of almost unassailable from the sound of things. And, you know, it, it's, uh, it's been a good investment in terms of its shares. I mean, what, what, what's your view on the shares? Do you think that... Uh, there are risks that will will finally catch up with it. That, that competition will finally catch up with it. Or you know, is this just going to get you know a case of the big 
continuing to get bigger? If to me the 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 big it's 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 proven that it can see off the competition. Um, I think it's very difficult now for anyone to really knock it off its perch unless they want to engage in a very aggressive price war, um, which I'm not so sure anyone really, really wants to do. Um, so from a, comp- from a competitive uh, point of view, it's an incredibly good place. The, the real threat um, to this business is if somebody in the competition authorities, and you've already had the competition authorities look at um, exit fees from from platforms. Um, my, my view is that, you know, my view is that the platform fees on funds are too high. And whilst, whilst there is some competition, um, that competition is not probably being as effective as you would probably like to see it but that's the main threat. You know, I think unless, unless the competition authorities start looking, and this will be looking at the platform market as a whole, not just Hargreaves lands down on its own, that's the real threat to it. And obviously the other, the other issue is the level of, um, the level of uh, investment markets and stock markets in particular, um, because a following wind on the stock markets, high stock markets are very helpful to businesses like this. So those are the two main threats. The, the stock market threat, the value of the stock market is obviously a much more real threat. Um, and then obviously you have to be mindful of, of potential regulatory or competition um, intervention. But I'm not sure that's, sure that's going to happen anytime soon. But they, they can argue and say, look, this is a competitive market. My view is that this market looks like it's getting less competitive um, it seems that yes, you've got new entrants, you've got people trying to get into this market, but you know you've got interactive investor that's been buying up platforms over the last three years, and you really now got two or three main players. Um, there's a lot of concentration in this industry, and when you have industries with lots of concentration, it tends to mean that profits for those that are at the top end of that concentration will be very good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we could see some tech disruption. We were, uh, we've we've uh, we've spoken to a couple of uh, of guys who are in the business of trying to provide those disruptive platforms that that, that perhaps attract younger audiences and and uh, and sort of nibble away at the uh, the sort of bottom of Hargreaves Lansdowne's business. But um, but yeah, it seems like a, a very difficult challenge for them. Um, I think the thing, as far as competitors are concerned, is that for, for their business models to work, they need to win lots of customers because you need. You need scale because you need you need the scale to cover those fixed costs, and if you don't cover those fixed costs, you're not going to make any money. So you've got to, you know, depending on what those costs are, you have, you know, a new entrant could find it very difficult to make make the numbers stack up. Well, it's going to cost them a lot of money to uh, to attract the, the numbers that they need. You would, uh, you know, you, you mentioned Harvey's marketing spend earlier. That's the kind of that's what they're up against. Well, thanks, Phil. Uh, lots, lots to mull over there, both in terms of how you, uh, you think about using investment platforms and, and how you think about investing in them uh, in their shares as well. Cheers, Phil. All right. Cheers, John. 
That's it for this week, I'm afraid. But before we head off, let me just talk you through what else we've got in this week's MAC. The annual summer results rush continues and we're heading down the market cap scale with another mix of good, bad and downright ugly. Megas looked at some better performance in the fund section with a nice compare and contrast of two of the best technology investment trusts you can buy, Polar Capital Technology and Allianz. And Dave Baxter's looked at options in the UK commercial property market where it's not all as gloomy as the latest economic figures might suggest. We talked about Hargreaves' high levels of client cash holdings, but a big question that's always asked by investors is how much of our savings we should hold in cash. And Mary has answered that this week in the PF section. John Rosier is back with his diary, and we have a great piece in our new bi-weekly commodity section looking at the shameful lack of diversity in African mining boardrooms. And finally, there is the cover feature, which continues our new future series and asks how the Gordian knot of global supply chains might be rethought in the post-COVID landscape. Thank you to Mary McDougall for putting this uh, podcast together this week, and thanks to all our guests, Richard Wilson, Adam Dodds, Felicia Hiertman, and Phil Oakley, and thanks, of course, to my excellent co-host, Megan, as always. And thank you all for listening. Uh, Uh, And we'll be back again next week where we'll be looking at private equity. Speak soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.